Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. This week on the podcast, reporter Humberto Sanchez talks with Representative Susie Lee about her efforts in D.C. to bring more relief to small businesses in the state. After that, I talk with reporter Michelle Rendells about the unprecedented unemployment numbers stemming from the coronavirus shutdowns, and how the state is handling the backlog and constant crush of new claims. At the end of the show, editor John Ralston and you, Jacob, continue your conversation from last week on Oscar winners of the past few decades and which ones might be worth a quarantine rewatch. Before we move on, here's a quick update on where things stand this week regarding the coronavirus. As of recording this podcast on Friday, May 8th, confirmed cases of COVID-19 exceed 5,900 and 296 people have died statewide. Those numbers will likely have increased by the time you hear this. But nearly two months into the statewide economic shutdown, Governor Sisolak announced Thursday that portions of the economy could open as soon as this weekend as part of phase one of the state's recovery plan. The accelerated timeline will affect a number of small businesses and retail outfits, which must still abide by strict capacity limits and social distancing requirements. But the reopening will still exclude businesses like gyms, nightclubs, and casinos, where the risk of infection remains high. With casinos remaining closed and uncertainty over tourism numbers through the summer months, it's not yet clear whether Nevada's unemployment crisis will relent anytime soon. State unemployment statistics released this week show another 30,000 Nevadans filed an initial unemployment claim through May 2nd, raising the total number of initial claims since mid-March to more than 420,000. For more on the coronavirus, including a detailed live blog and an in-depth breakdown of the governor's remarks from this week, head to thenevadaindependent.com. And now for our reporter Humberto Sanchez talk with Representative Susie Lee. Hey, Humberto, how's it going? Hey, Congresswoman, how are you? I'm uh, hanging in there. It's been an uh, incredible couple of weeks. We, uh, I heard you call you on the call this morning, actually. That was really informative. So what what do you want to see in this next package? And, and uh, I guess first off, yeah, what, and what are you hearing from constituents? What, what do they need coming up? Uh, listen, I mean, first and foremost, I think, uh, you know, it's pretty clear that we're going to need to look at extending unemployment. We're going to need to look at uh, most important. I, most important for me is state and local funding. You know, Nevada stands to lose between a quarter and a half of our state budget in revenue. Uh, when I look at Medicaid, when I look at our education bu- bu- uh, budget, that's 28 percent and 25 percent of our state budget, respectively. So when you start to look at uh, revenue shortfalls and what that's going to mean and budgets and how we're going to start having to cut expenses to deal with the budget. It's clearly going to have an impact on our students, our teachers, our families, uh, insurance, health care for uh, our most vulnerable. Mm. So uh, very, you know, I can't stress how important uh, it's going to be and what a big fight it's going to be for me to make sure we're getting state and local funding. In fact, I have a bill uh, that I've proposed, uh, the Federal uh, Medicare Assistance or Medicaid Assistance uh, Program, to increase the federal contribution to Medicaid uh, automatically based on a state's unemployment. States like Nevada, where we have high unemployment, we we could see up to 12% of the federal match for uh, Medicaid. Do you think that Mitch McConnell's made this kind of bargain with uh, waiving liability for companies in exchange for state and local government relief 
Do you think that's a fair trade-off? Do you think that that'll be the crux of the discussion going forward? Uh, you know, I think it's quite very telling juxtaposition. You have Mitch McConnell saying, we got to protect special interests. And you have us saying, we got to protect our most vulnerable. So, you know, I find that interesting that that's the first negotiating point. And, you know, like I said before, from my point of view, I'm going to fight like hell for state and local funding, especially for small municipalities under 500000 and to make sure that this funding can be used for uh, a reduction in revenue. Mm-hmm. Right now, you know, the $1.25 billion that the state received in federal aid uh, can only be used for coronavirus-related expenses. So uh, I think that there's a wide... I hate to see that being his first stake in the ground because, uh, you know me, I'm a member of the Problem Solvers Caucus. Right. We like to come to the table. We like to work together. In fact, the Problem Solvers Caucus did put forward a back-to-work plan. That did include, this is 50 Democrats, 50 Republicans, so this isn't a partisan issue. And it did include, you know, uh, direct investments in the state, county, cities, and towns. Right. Uh, do you think that the, the House will pass a bill first, or do you think it'll be negotiated? I know there's been some... Uh this a little disappointment that uh, it seems to be negotiating at the leadership level and, and and a lot of not a lot of folks have been getting input from uh the rank and file how do you think the negotiations will go this time do you think there'll be more input from the rank and file uh going forward we obviously are dealing with a situation where we all you know for health reasons are not back in washington uh but i will tell you i spend hours on caucus calls mm-hmm. on different calls I've already, I've had a uh, Veterans Affairs virtual forum. I've had a bipartisan uh, education committee forum. So we have had uh, opportunities to weigh in on these bills. I mean, certainly as you start to negotiate the ins and outs of the final package, uh, you know, it comes to the chairman and, and the people who are in the negotiations. But uh, we have had a say in what's important in getting it in this bill. I mean, you know, one of the things that we've made clear is obviously the state and local funding, making sure we're getting targeted funding to schools, fire, police, you know, CDBG. Uh, we talked about more uh, support for hospitals, mm. child, uh, child care for frontline employees. You know, I'm on Ed and Labor. We've talked about, uh, see, Ed and Labor, for me, the state and local is so important because, especially in Nevada, that's education. And, you know, the, the NC already has been talking about, I think it's like $149 million in proposed budget cuts. I have a, I have a bill looking at giving relief to students with private loans, the same relief that we've given them for the direct loans from the government. So there's a lot that we're talking about. We're having the opportunity to make our input known. When it, you know, I would like personally would love to see more debate. I'd like to see more having more opportunity to debate this because these are big packages. We've seen, you know, with the implementation of these packages as they come out, like I said, we're building the airplane as we're flying. And so there's a lot of, you know, unintended consequences. There's a lot of unforeseen uh, implications and being able to correct them. But more importantly, we also have to be able to have the oversight and to make sure that this money is being spent the way it's intended to. Well, I guess 
your committee will be doing oversight. The Ed, Ed, Ed and Labor, I'm sure, will be doing quite a bit of that oversight. Ed and Labor, yeah. I mean, our big thing with Ed and Labor is, uh, you know, obviously looking at, um, you know, state and local funding, I think, is most important. Mm-hmm. But uh, looking at student debt, but more importantly, worker protection and uh, OSHA requirements and making sure that when we're, um, you know, asking people to come back to work, that we're not asking them to risk, risk their lives to do it. And I, I, you know, I do think that there needs to be an enforceable emergency temporary standard for protection from airborne disease. You know, this is something that is unprecedented. And, um, you know, when we're putting people on the front line, we need to be able to make sure we're doing what we can to protect them uh, in their job. So that's going to be a big thing. Subsidizing COBRA uh-huh. payments, we're going to see a lot of people, especially in our state, uh, who are going to see their health care run out, uh, who are losing their jobs. So we need to offer them an affordable alternative uh, in doing that. And then, you know, looking at student debt relief. And uh, just lastly, I wanted to get you uh, on the Paycheck Protection Program. Do you think that's been a successful program? Do you think that it's gone to the small businesses that needed it? What uh, other things can be done and what tweaks could be made? Uh, listen, I mean, you know, there's 30 million small businesses in uh, in our country. 10 million have access to money so far. We saw that in the first tranche of the money, um, you know, I think it was an average loan size of $206 million. Uh, you know, we and what we fought for was $60 billion of funding that would be directly directed to CDFI, yeah. uh, local credit unions, small community banks, small and medium size, so it could be directed down uh, to, you know, smaller and medium sized businesses. And we have seen an impact on that. You know, we have seen that there have been more loans uh, rewarded. The second, we've seen good size. There have been uh, 2 million loans, $175 billion. The average size has gone down. Uh, and so, you know, so we've seen an impact of making those changes. I do think there, when we look at the next round, we're going to probably even go even further and look at even smaller non uh, businesses yeah. less than 25 employees uh looking at nonprofits. so again like i say this is unprecedented we are assembling the airplane as we're flying it you know and you know we set it up to go through the banking system so we get the money out as quickly as possible that has worked but there have been because individuals didn't have relationships with banks right they weren't as sophisticated they fell through the cracks we tried to make that change. And one thing I'm really proud of, I wrote a letter to the Treasury Department because there were uh, local credit unions that were being cut out of offering these loans because of the SBA requirement. There was an SBA requirement um, that prevented privately insured credit unions from qualifying as an SBA lender. And uh, I guess, and my last, last, last question. You're, what are you hearing most from constituents? And are you, is your office hearing a, a lot, getting just a much more calls than usual, than typical? Yeah, my my office is getting between, at now, I mean, it was up higher before, yeah. but between 250, 300 calls per week. The number one phone call is they're not getting the phone answered at the unemployment sure, office. Sure, sure. 
And so I think that's a combination thing. Listen, I know that here's one thing I got. We got to make clear. 1099 independent contractors, gig employees. We made it possible under these bills that they would have coverage. That has never happened before. They have never been eligible for coverage. Now, many of them have not seen a dime because there's never been a system for them. And we have, Dieter has an antiquated system. We all know that. Mm -hmm. They have dealt with 350,000 unemployment claims. Many of them are independent contractors, 1099 gig employees who never had access to the system because there never was one. So they're working to get that system up and running. That does not offer solace to an individual who was told they can't work on March 17th and hasn't seen a paycheck. Right. You know, the governor has instituted his directives to back pay these individuals uh, when this system does get set up. Mm -hmm. We insist, I've been told it's mid-May that it will be up. And uh, so one, you know, one thing I implore people is if you are an independent contractor, I know it's frustrating, but you know, it, it, don't call the unemployment office unless you have, you know, I, I mean, it's like uh, this, we're on this, uh, it's frustrating because you're sitting there thinking, I need to know what's going on. Right. But we know that there's not a system developed until mid-May. Okay. And when that gets developed, and what I always tell people is, look at the videos, the YouTube videos, read the requirements. Get your while you get your ducks in a row, so that when you do fill out the the application, you don't make a mistake or an omission. Because when you do that, that kicks your application out, and that is when you need to call. I, I know it's, it's so that's the number one issue. People are really frustrated. They're they're desperate. They're nervous, I, and uh, you know I understand. And you know, and then we're just trying. We've done over 600 cases, connected people with resources. You know, and I plead for people to call my office. If you have a question, call us. Uh, I have a resource guide that I put on my website, mm -hmm. um, you know, .gov. It It's a comprehensive resource guide to help people uh, access resources in the community. Great. Well, uh, I'm going to let you go. I know you've you got a busy day ahead of you. Uh, well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it, and I hope to talk to you soon. All right. Thank you. Now nearly two months into the coronavirus pandemic, more than 420,000 initial unemployment claims were filed in Nevada. It's an unprecedented number, and it quickly overwhelmed the state's already struggling unemployment system at the Department of Employee Training and Rehabilitation. Our very own Michelle Rendells has been following the story since day one, and she joins me now. Michelle, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Jacob. First, I want to ask about the leadership shakeup at the Department of, em of Employee Training and Rehabilitation. Now, you spoke to the new head there, uh, Heather Korbulik. She used to run the state's health exchange, and now she's taken over the job of unemployment head at a very interesting time to run that department. Can you explain a little bit what did she say and, and how is she taking on the new job? Well, uh, Heather Korbulik, as you mentioned, has been in charge of the state's health insurance exchange, so she's already had the experience of being part of a system that had initially some really crippling technology problems um, and, you know, has become a, a respected 
state agency that's kind of been innovative in terms of breaking away from the the federal government's exchange now and really kind of doing things independently and, and that's given Nevada a lot of flexibility. So she's had success in recent uh, years with that. Uh, the way she told it to me is that, you know, she'd been offering, uh, is there any way I can help uh, the CISLAC administration navigate this challenge? And so at some point he gave her a call and asked if she'd be willing to lead this agency. Uh, it was previously run by Dr. Tiffany Tyler Garner, who had been there pretty much since the beginning of the CISLAC administration, so about a year, um, but sort of uh, abruptly told employees that she was going to be leaving, um, and Heather was announced shortly after that uh, that she was going to leave this agency. And so with all that, I kind of want to dig into some of the problems the unemployment system has been having. Can can you describe the issues that existed even before the coronavirus pandemic and how, how the pandemic has really exacerbated those issues since? Yeah, well, one of the biggest issues is that the federal government is in charge of sort of paying for the infrastructure of the state-level unemployment systems. Um, so the federal government kind of pulls back uh, during economic good times and then invests more in this infrastructure when the economy goes bad. But the problem was that the economy was going great and then the pandemic just hit like a train. Uh, so the state had not been ramping up. Um, the federal government had not been sending more money. In fact, it had been pulling money away for several years. So um, we knew you know, last year, really, that this system was unable to handle even a low volume of calls. Uh, the agency testified to legislators last year that it was probably going to struggle to handle 2,800 calls a week. Um, and now, you know, we're in this pandemic, they're getting tens of thousands of initial unemployment claims a week. Um, and, and people are calling hundreds of times a day. So this system is just completely unmatched uh, to this crisis. Um, you know, they, they just don't have enough trained people that are specialized in handling unemployment claims. This is a specialized field. You can't just jump in instantly and know all the rules because it requires verification of past employment and what were the circumstances of you leaving your job. Um, there's a big legal uh, quagmire, I guess, on the other end of unemployment claims um, that make it complicated to know if someone is eligible for benefits. And if so, how much, uh, how many benefits are they eligible for at any given time? Mm. So with all that, uh, what has the agency done in the time since to sort of adapt to the unique circumstances we find ourselves in now? Yeah, so, you know, I think we started into this crisis with about 75 people that were sort of UI claims uh, call center workers. Um, that number has since ramped up to about 200. These are the kind of people that are specialized enough to know how to deal with sticky issues that need to be resolved um, between the claimant and the employer and all this. So they've ramped up, they've, they pulled in people from other agencies that maybe had experience in this field. So they were able to ramp up to about 200 uh, employees 
that we know of. <laughs> we don't know the exact current number at this moment, but it was around 200 at least a couple of weeks ago. The other thing that they did was that they brought on an outside vendor called Alorica. This is a call center company, and they added capacity for probably about 100 additional call center workers. The problem, as I mentioned, is, is this is a specialized job. So if you're dealing with any sort of a sticky uh, claims issue, this independent outside call center is not going to be able to get into the system and really fix that issue for you. Uh, this outside call center is kind of just here to answer general questions and maybe screen out people that um, have, have really kind of off-topic questions. Uh, what we've heard from Heather is that a lot of people are calling the unemployment office to ask about their stimulus check, and that's completely unrelated, um, but this outside call center can sort of tell people, okay, that's a federal issue, go to the IRS website. Um, please don't call into our overstrained uh, unemployment insurance uh, call center. The other thing that they've really been doing is trying to do some di different coding that can resolve some of the issues that they're seeing over and over again. For example, they said people maybe incorrectly marked uh, the online form when it asked if they're going to be available for work. Uh, now, during the pandemic, you're allowed to be, quote unquote, not available for work, because obviously there's really not a whole lot of work to be out looking for. Um, and people are home with their kids who are out of school. Um, you know, they're, they're kind of on furlough. So they filled it out wrong. They maybe checked the wrong box. And that held up just tons of claims. So they've been able to use some creative coding to try to kind of batch correct this whole um, snag that a lot of people are having. So they've done that on a couple different issues. Hmm. So zooming out a little bit, um, I was hoping that you could help put this unemployment number in context. So this week we saw 420,000 initial unemployment claims through May 2nd, and that's from sort of mid-March. What does that number mean in context, and, and how can you help people understand the scope of the problem that we're seeing right now? Yeah, so... When we're talking about upwards of 400,000 people who have filed their initial claims for unemployment, we're talking about uh, 27 or 28% of the entire Nevada workforce. Now, you know, you take the population of 3 million, um, you take out all the children, and you take out all the seniors that are, you know, retirement age. And what you're left with is about 1.5 million people. That constitutes the Nevada workforce. So uh, we're talking about getting up to close to 30% of the entire workforce, um, which is just an astronomical number. It just eclipses um, the entire situation that we experienced in the recession when we were up above 14% unemployment. Um, now, they're all coming at once, of course. They come in waves as these casinos drop them off the payrolls. Um, so just, you know, tons of people all at once. And as I mentioned, um, this call center was heading into the pandemic, only able to handle 2,800 calls a week. This website is just completely overwhelmed as well. So um, you're getting about 40 times as much um, volume as you would get in a typical week. Um, and, and the system was just never made for that. And Heather has described this as a 
thousand year flood. This is just something that that really no systems have been adequately prepared for, um, and it's just really overwhelming the whole system. And on the the numbers and the sort of weekly numbers that we're seeing come in, there has been a reduction over time in in that sort of in that biggest number, right? The biggest initial claims number week by week, but those numbers are still in the tens of thousands. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. We got new numbers um, this week, and yeah, it's upwards of thirty thousand just in a single week. Um, and these numbers, these are, you know, at least 10 times what, what even a bad week would have been right up before the pandemic. Um, now, I think we're going to have to watch this closely and see how things change, because, of course, Governor Sisolak announced that some businesses are going to be able to reopen. Um, you know, I think we're not going to see a super dramatic uh, change in the number of people that are on the unemployment rolls until really the casinos get going again. And then what's it going to look like at that point because uh, the volumes of tourists is going to be down. Are they going to need their full workforce to come back or are people going to be permanently laid off um, just because there's just not the demand anymore? So I think we're going to be watching closely to see how many people um, not just file for initial unemployment but are on what's called continued claims, which means people that are filing week after week for successive weeks um, and, and drawing down unemployment benefits. So you mentioned there that the governor did announce that there will be some reopening soon in the, in the coming days and weeks um, of the state's economy. Uh, he had a press conference uh, today, Thursday, where he addressed at least in part this unemployment issue. What did he have to say about that? You know, he's been getting this question pretty much at every press conference is, what do you have to say to people who are just desperate that have been calling hundreds of times a day, every day for seven weeks and are still getting nothing and are, are worried about uh, even, you know, having their next meal on the table. Um, and, and, and we're hearing sort of similar things each time that, you know, they're working through this backlog as fast as they can. And uh, the issues that are really holding people up are sort of individual issues. It's not just something that can be, um, you know, you can fix 10,000 claims at once. These are specific issues where maybe you didn't send your pay stub in and they can't verify that your employer, um, you know, paid into the system and therefore you get benefits. Um, Now, this is another thing to remember is that this is unemployment insurance. It's not just kind of a blanket Uh, entitlement program. It works like an insurance system. So if your previous employer paid in, uh, then you're eligible for benefits. If they didn't, you're just not. Um, It's like if you were uninsured on a vehicle and you got in a crash, you know, there's no one to pay for that um, claim if if you didn't pay into the insurance system to begin with. Um, I think another thing is that there is this process for people who are not in that boat. Say they're, they're an Uber driver or they're an independent contractor and they um, didn't have an employer paying into the state's uninsurance system, um, but the federal government is going to be paying their benefits. And that program is supposed to be starting in mid-May, and I know a lot of people are really looking forward to that because they've just fallen into this gap where they're not eligible for unemployment benefits because they, they didn't have an employer paying in on their behalf. 
Okay, well, we'll have to leave it there. Michelle, thanks so much. Thanks so much, Jacob. And now you'll hear the second part of a conversation I had with editor John Ralston last week about a couple of Oscar winners from past decades. If you want to hear the first part of this conversation, you can find it in last week's episode, episode 135. All right, turning it even further back, Crash. Of course, we have to talk about Crash. Crash, the movie about race relations in mid-2000s Los Angeles. Uh, Does it deserve all the crap it get for being bad about race relations? Uh. Uh, I, I want you to remind me again in a second of what the other movies were. I thought I didn't think it should have won. I, I think it is, it is now seen as the a, a, a example of a movie that didn't deserve to win. Uh, that won. That it's a terrible movie and all the rest of it. I liked Crash. I thought some of it was incredibly contrived, uh, but but some of the acting in it was really really good. E- even if the message was somewhat uh, heavy-handed, right? Uh, and and I thought some of, some of, some of the plot points were very contrived. But I don't think it deserves in your formulation all the crap that it gets. All right. So just to compare, uh, that year also included Brokeback Mountain, Capote, Good Night and Good Luck, and Munich, which I think are all better movies than Crash. Brokeback Mountain probably uh, should have won. Although, uh, as a journalist, I have kind of a a fondness for Good Night and Good Luck, which I thought I was really surprised what a good job George Clooney did on that movie. It was really, really well done. But I, I think I thought Brokeback Mountain was the best movie of that year. I think I'll have to agree with you on that one. Now we're going to get into the 1990s. And uh, now this is a titanic battle between two real okay movies, in my estimation, that both won Best Picture. And that's 1999's American Beauty and 1998's Shakespeare in Love. Which is more worthy of a revisit, if if either? Uh, Shakespeare in Love is another controversial one that people say never should have won an Oscar. Probably shouldn't have. Uh, you'll have to tell me what else was done that year. But Shakespeare in Love, I enjoyed. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of a, you know, I was a literature major. I'm a literature guy. I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was clever. Uh, but Best Picture, no. American Beauty, though, I thought was a great movie. Really a great movie. Yeah, I'll have to revisit American Beauty. I probably watched it when I was in high school at a time when I was probably not equipped to understand scenes such as the the grocery bag floating in the wind. Um, but that year included such luminary pictures as in 1998, Saving Private Ryan, The Thin Red Line, Life is Beautiful, and Elizabeth. Where 199, uh, sorry, that was 1998. In 99, had The Cider House Rules, The Green Mile, The Insider, and The Sixth Sense. So. Oh, The Insider should have won. I think The Insider is one of Michael Mann's best movies. And maybe Russell Crowe, people disagree on this with me on this, maybe Russell Crowe's best performance. He just he just became Jeffrey Wigand in that movie. He was incredible, uh, I, I, I thought. And um, Christopher Plummer as Mike Wallace. What a casting choice that was. I haven't seen it, so I'm going to have to take your word you on that. You should definitely see that. You'd, lo- you'd love it, especially since you're a journalist. It's another journalism movie. It is, it is really, really great. Well, there we go. I'll have to add it to my list. All right, now we're going to do uh, a couple lightning round uh, uh, Best Picture winners here. I'm just going to name the Best Picture winner, and you tell me whether or not you think, based purely on this movie alone, whether or not it is a Best Picture. Uh, all right, Hurt Locker, 2009. Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, 2003. I love all the Lord of the Rings movies. I don't know what else it was up against, but it, 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 those are great movies. I have no problem with any of them winning. 
Oh, I guess I'll break my own rules. 2003 seems like a weak year. Looking back at it, Lost in Translation, Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World, Mystic River, and Seabiscuit. I probably would have gone for uh, for Mystic River there. I thought that was a really, really good movie. But I have no problem with The Lord of the Rings winning. It's probably like, you know, you went for three years and they didn't give it to them the other two years. So we'll give it to you. I don't even think Return of the King is the best Lord of the Rings movie. But I there we go. But I digress. So... Uh, Dances with Wolves, 1990. Uh, Listen, I think uh, Kevin Costner takes a lot of grief from a lot of people, and I'm one of them. Uh, But that was a great movie. I I think it's Oscar-worthy. I'll have to agree with you there. The only setting in which I've watched was in a high school history class, so I don't think that is a fair representation of that movie. (laughs) Uh, All right, Forrest Gump. And I don't have the year handy, but it was the 90s. Forrest Gump? Yeah, I mean, I, I... I understand why it won because it was so clever and because Tom Hanks' performance was so good. Hanks won an Oscar for that, too. I think he won two in a row, Philadelphia, and then that, I think, if I remember correctly. Um, but, yeah, Forrest Gump, I, I don't have a problem with that. I'll say it's inoffensive. Everyone sort of thinks fondly of Forrest Gump. and Isn't that really what you want as a filmmaker? I guess that's right, to some extent, yes. Uh, all right. A couple more recent ones. The Shape of Water. Oh, that was terrible. I cannot believe that that movie won. That's a travesty. Are you, a, are you So you're not a Guillermo del Toro fan? I actually like him. I just thought that movie was way overrated. I love Michael Shannon, too. I just I didn't like that movie. I'll agree with you on Michael Shannon. He was great. He's great in everything he does, but I really loved him in uh, Knives Out uh, this past year. Oh, he was great in that. Um, but uh, The Shape of Water, probably not even del Toro's best work. Um, and just a very strange winner because, okay, I'll break my own rules again. That year had many nominees, including Call Me By Your Name, Darkest Hour, Dunkirk, Get Out, Lady Bird, Phantom Thread, The Post, and three, bu- three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. So, which are a lot of movies that I would probably watch again before I would watch The Shape of Water. Dun- Dunkirk is not Nolan's best film, but it's better than uh, almost any of the ones that you mentioned. And I'm pretty sure that's the same year as um, Blade Runner 2049, which I thought was the best movie of that year. I'll have to agree with you there once again. All right. And last but not least, a movie that at least uh, among people that I've seen it with have derided it as pretentious and up its own ass, Birdman. Birdman I liked. I, I did like quite a bit. It is pretentious, uh, but the acting in there is tremendous. And um, I, th- I think Michael Keaton was expected to win for that and then didn't win, if I, if I recall correctly, Jacob. What mm-hmm. else was nominated that year? Do you have that in front of you? I do. That year included American Sniper, Boyhood, The Grand Budapest Hotel, The Imitation Game, Selma, The Theory of Everything, and Whiplash, which is the drumming movie that I couldn't remember. There we go. Whiplash, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was great. Um. Yeah, yeah, I can, I, I, I can see. I, I, some of those, some of those movies might have been better. Yeah, I, I can see that. I can concede that Birdman would win Best Picture, and I absolutely love Michael. Well, one again, I love Michael Keaton in everything. He's just tremendous, and uh, he killed it again as a superhero, especially considering his uh, legacy as a very strange Batman in the nineteen eighties. Um, but also, you know, am I going to watch Birdman when I could watch Grand Budapest Hotel again? Probably not. Yeah, so. I would see Grand Budapest Hotel as well again. Uh, that, that, that was a phenomenal movie. But I, I know you're done with me, Jacob, but you've left out the biggest pet peeve I have in Oscar history, which oh, is 1997 on. when Titanic won over L.A. Confidential, 
which is one of the top five best movies ever made. That's right. Well, that that year, too, also had Goodwill Hunting, As Good As It Gets, and The Full Monty, which, no, well, I don't know about the last two. But look, Goodwill Hunting, I like that movie. The year 1997. Goodwill Hunting is an, is an excellent movie. And Titanic is a spectacular achievement, technically, but the script was just horrible and cliched. L.A. Confidential had like five Oscar-worthy performances in it, a great plot, and the one person in the movie who was a lead who didn't deserve to win the Oscar, Kim Basinger, won the Oscar, which I never understood. A travesty that will never be corrected, mostly because Titanic, what did it make, $2 billion at the box office? Yes, exactly right. And, and, and the year that heard the Hurt Locker, who was made by Catherine Bigelow, who's, his, who's James Cameron's ex-wife, everyone thought Cameron was going to win for Avatar, and he didn't win. Mm-hmm. But I'm glad the Hurt Locker won, because I thought the Hurt Locker was a phenomenal movie. Well, and Avatar suffers from the same problem as Titanic, in that it is um, not actually that good of a movie, and is more about being a presentation for 3D glasses than anything else. That's exactly right. You're, you're right on. All right, so that's all I've got for you, John. But before we go, what is your favorite Oscar winner of all time that people may have forgotten about, but they really should take a look at or snub or anything. What's, what's a movie that people need to add to their list? Well, I always say that I think this might've won best picture. I always forget this, but um, uh, the bridge on the river Kwai, I always say is my favorite movie. Uh, It's maybe the best war movie ever made. And there've been a lot of great war movies uh, with Alec Guinness long, long before his Obi-Wan Kenobi days in Star Wars movies made in the 50s sometime with a great performance by Guinness and William Holden and Sesu Hayakawa as the uh, head of, 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 of the Japanese prison camp. It is a phenomenal movie. All right. Well, hopefully everyone listening has a long list of stuff to revisit now. John, thanks for joining me. All right, Jacob. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Representative Susie Lee, Humberto Sanchez, Michelle Rendells, and John Ralston for being on the podcast this week. If you like the podcast, you can find more of it on all of the podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or our website, which has a new podcast player if you click on Indie Matters on the sidebar. If you would like to support our journey into the fun, exciting, and innovative world of nonprofit local journalism, you can do so by clicking the Support Our Work button on the top of our site. If you want minute-to-minute updates on the situation in the state, you can also check out our coronavirus live blog, which is on our website, thenevadaindependent.com. And of course, if you have comments, criticism, or praise, you can email us at jacob at com or joey at com. People with Bodies wrote our original theme song, and you can find more of their music on Spotify or Bandcamp. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week.